Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Daniel Levin on Proof of Life. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out our revamped website at booksonpod.com. You can now search past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or you can even sort by category. For instance, pick the current events in politics or history category for my conversation with Yon Grillo on Blood Gun Money. This is Yon Grillo, author of Blood Gun Money, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Daniel Levin is an expert in economic development, war zone diplomacy, political reform, and anti-corruption, as well as a published author. His newest book is Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Daniel, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, Trey. How are you? I'm doing great. So what compelled you to write this book? Well, the one reason I give in the book at the end of the book is a promise I make to one of the war's victims uh, that I will tell her story. That's the primary reason I decided to write it. It also, for me, was of all the experiences I had in Syria and around uh, similar situations with hostages, probably the one that was most condensed was also most exposed to all aspects of this war over 20 days. So it also was probably the easiest example to tell. Your friend Hubie asked you to help him find a missing person, someone that was like a son to him who had vanished in Syria. Why did he ask you of all people to help him out? Hubie was aware of the fact that uh, I had spent a bit of time in Syria and working with young Syrians in the early parts of the war in 2012-2013. Our foundation was active there at the time when the war was really very undecided before the Russian intervention. And uh, no one was really gaining the upper hand. In fact, the regime and its troops were getting beaten pretty heavily, including their allies, the Hezbollah troops, who lost a lot of their senior officers. So there was an interest of various parties to uh, mediate. And we had this initiative going, uh, which was part mediation, part rebuilding a post-Syrian society and constitution. Uh, That all died with the Russian intervention that tipped the war. But at the time, as a result of this work and our network in the region, I had been approached by several uh, families and governments also with uh, requests for whether I could get any information on missing people. So Hubie was aware of that. Uh, and it was in the wake of that kind of presence in the region and in Syria that he approached me with this request. So what details did he share with you when y'all met in Paris? What he told me, uh, and I was initially really not inclined to to uh, get involved in this, what he basically said is that the son of a close friend of his had gone missing. He didn't know much. Uh, over our subsequent conversations, he mentioned that there was some kind of a connection possibly to the drug called Captagon, uh, not with this person himself, but with someone that he knew in Syria and was uh, potentially trying to meet. I didn't know much, though, and Hubie didn't know much. This is not a person who was sent by a government or an aid organization or a newspaper uh, or a TV station. This was essentially a person who had wandered in, and it looked like just an adventurer uh, who really didn't properly assess the risks he was taking. Uh, I obviously found more information as I searched for information about this person, but initially that's all I knew and that's all Hubie uh, would share. Also, his personal emotional ties to this individual was something that only got revealed later in the in in the story what were your feelings as you parted ways with him that night after you had initially agreed to help him out 
You know, my, my initial feeling, obviously, you feel terribly sorry for him. I could see the sadness that he was feeling. But my first feeling was, I, I wish I had never had this conversation. I had just had a very disappointing experience where I had failed in getting even any information on a person who had gone missing, where I'd been contacted by the parents. And uh, and I, I'd sworn to myself that I'm not going to do this again, or certainly not for a while. It was really emotionally very draining when you're dealing with the families of the people who went missing. Uh, and I, I really needed a break, but Hubie was smart in the way he roped me in and appealed to I mean, my empathy and my feelings and uh, and his, his sense of desperation. Uh, and this is a person who's extremely well connected at the top levels with governments, both in the region and in Europe and the U.S., but not at the bottom level and the people who are running the war economy in Syria. And so that's where he needed help. And, and my first feeling right after empathy and compassion, my first feeling was just this deep sense of regret. Like this was just a mistake. I shouldn't have gotten involved in this. But you uh, gave him your word. And of course, you followed through on that. Who is Khalid Almari? And why was he the first person you contacted when really beginning this search? Khalid Almari is a Saudi uh, a person who is half Saudi's mother is actually Syrian, uh, three years older than I am. He and I met 20 years ago almost uh, in a hotel in Qatar, actually. We were both sitting in a lounge waiting for, the, for a person who was supposed to pick us up individually, meaning to- totally separately, and we were both being stood up by, the, by our respective chaperones. And it so happened that we were sitting there reading the same book, and we started to have a conversation and became really close friends. Khalid is someone extremely well-connected in the region. He was very close, a personal aide to uh, what later became King Abdullah at the time, Crown Prince Abdullah in Saudi Arabia when he was running the country because the king had suffered a stroke for many years. Uh, And uh, ultimately, Khalid was a a tad too progressive for other members of the royal family, especially for who is the king today, King Salman, uh, and uh, was maligned and slandered and ultimately had to get out of Saudi Arabia, but remained very influential in the region and very close to, uh, to, to powerful players in all the countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and the whole Gulf. And Khalid, uh, Khalid is someone who has always helped me in these types of hairy situations. In other hostage uh, in other hostage constellations, he's usually the first person I call. If he has information, he will tell me what he has, and he will tell me whether he thinks we can help or not. And if his answer is no, then I immediately report back that I can't do anything. Because if Khalid can't do it for whatever reason, and, and there's a whole different range of reasons, uh, then then I'm not going to put myself in a place just to disappoint somebody. In this case, he got back to me and said, look, uh, we may have a trail uh, for this missing person, but this time you'll actually have to go to Beirut and meet some of your uh, some of our sources directly. I can't do this for you this time, uh, for reasons we can get into, uh, obviously. But that, but Khalid is he? It's I don't want it in any way to give the impression he's some kind of a shady, CD shaker. He's really a, a very serious person, uh, and just has been around and trustworthy to so many people for so long that he really is in a position to help. And it sounds like he also has a very fascinating way with words. What impresses you about uh, the conversations that you get to have with him? He's one of those people who is unbelievably precise with words. When you have a conversation, you feel that no word is wasted. 
uh, there's an efficiency to it and a precision. He doesn't use adjectives because the 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 word that he the noun that he usually selects is the correct one. Uh, his his tense is always correct. He will chide me on not using pluperfect properly uh, in a sentence. There's just a precision and efficiency to the way he talks. He's obviously highly intelligent and uh, educated, not just in the uh, Islamic and Arab world, but also in literature in the Western world. And so um, he's someone I greatly admire. There are moments, especially in high-pressure situations, where I find him really pedantic and can be irritating when he feels the need to correct even my English, let alone my Arabic. Uh, <laughs> but... That's the person he is, and he very rarely makes a mistake. So in the context of, of trying to find a hostage, it's, of course, unbelievably valuable to have that at your disposal. So you mentioned that he suggests pretty quickly that you meet with some people in Beirut. And really at the foundation of this is a conversation that you need to have with someone who is known as the Sheik. Why was this such a daunting request from Khalid for you to speak with the Sheik? Uh, the Sheik is a, a, a very well-known public person. I was asked not to name him, but uh, I was allowed in the footnotes to my book to describe this person's life and how he ended up in Beirut. Uh, so anyone versed in the Middle East will be able to understand who this person is. He's a, a very visible political and religious figure there. Uh, the Sheikh was just a, a, the, the name I was asked to give him. It's not really a pseudonym. He is, in fact, referred to mainly by his followers as Sheikh. It's just an honorific title. Uh, he is a person who is also sanctioned by the U.S. and by many other countries. And so meeting him is complicated. In addition to just worries about my own safety, uh, he's, he's, it's obviously a very, very complicated and daunting task. And in the past, whenever... Uh, this person had information that was helpful to us. It was Khalid who obtained it for me. In this particular case, for a very specific reason, the person insisted on vetting me himself. In other words, the only way that we would get any further in, in, our, in our search here would be if I'd show up in Beirut and spend the night there in a personal conversation. And this vetting process actually begins with one of the sheikh's colleagues, perhaps his primary colleague, Jamil. What stands out to you about Jamil? Jamil is one of those uh, capable, sly figures uh, who has survived civil war in Syria and in Lebanon, uh, was orphaned early on and grew up in, a, in an orphanage in Beirut, actually under the sheikh's control. And so had that kind of loyalty to him and was very early identified as a promising recruit, if you will, in in uh, their own internal struggles and politics in the region, in Lebanon and the region. Uh, Jamil was sent by the Sheikh to pick me up in Istanbul. In other words, what happened was that Khalid summoned me to Istanbul. I flew from New York to Istanbul uh, and told me that that night I'd be going to the Beirut, but I'd be chaperoned by Jamil, who was sent. And essentially, it was a triage process. So Jamil would meet me at the airport uh, in the lounge in Istanbul, in the departure lounge. And if in that first conversation he concluded that I was not worth taking and not worth helping, then the whole thing would have ended right then and there. Uh, and fortunately, I passed muster for that initial stage and we flew together in a night flight to Beirut, landed there in the middle of the night and went straight to meet the Sheikh. Uh, but that it was it, for no other reason. It wasn't for my own safety or any other reason. It was really just to allow for that vetting process. And if at some point from the moment we first met in the lounge until we arrived in Beirut, I had done or behaved in a way uh, so done something or behaved in a way that would have disqualified me, I would have just 
been sent on the first flight back to Istanbul. Considering that you knew you were being judged when you met him at the airport and during the flight and even the car ride over to meet the Sheik, I mean, were you feeling that pressure at all throughout that time? I was, and and it didn't help that he kept telling me to just act naturally, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, w- it was hard. I ultimately concluded that there had been some already, some prejudging in even getting to that stage and that Khalid's good word would obviously go a long way. This was not a meeting I had any prayer of having without Khalid's good word and introduction. And at some point I just surrendered to it. Uh, I knew that when I would arrive in Beirut, I would have to hand over my cell phones and that I would be essentially cut off for the duration of that visit. It's a decision I had to make before I even got on the plane there. Uh, and and once you really surrender to it, you are who you are. He gave me some very valuable advice, which is not to try to flatter the sheikh, not to try to be saccharine or artificial about it, and just be myself. Uh, and then the chips fall as they may. I would be safe because I was under Khalid's protection. Uh, and the worst that would happen to me is that they concluded that they wouldn't help me and just ship me back to Istanbul. Uh, and and uh, early on, on the flight there, actually, I just I just uh, essentially really surrendered to my situation. So how did the meeting go then? And ultimately, what was the most important piece of information that the Sheik provided you? The meeting was uh, probably the most bizarre meeting I've ever had in my life. Uh, you know, I, I expected to go there, have a short meeting, didn't expect him to spend a lot of time with me. And if he wanted to help me to give me whatever next piece of information that only he had. Otherwise, I didn't really see what the point of that meeting was. There's a lot of effort to fly there just for something that he could have otherwise just told me. What I didn't realize and became clear is that the meeting had the, the only purpose of the meeting is to see whether he liked me enough or trusted me enough to make sure I got the information. In fact, it was Jamil, the, the person who had come to pick me up, who possessed the information on the next step all along. The meeting with the Sheikh was necessary for a number of reasons. One, to whether they trusted me, and second of all, to be absolutely sure that the missing person was not a journalist. Uh, the the Sheikh had, was, was very adamant about not wanting to get involved with the case of any journalists. He felt that it was a dirty little game that Western media companies and newspapers did by not sending their own correspondence into the fighting zones themselves, but rather taking advantage of freelancers who are trying to make a mark for themselves and risking it. And he had a lot of contempt for requests for help that came afterwards. Uh, and so uh, it was once he was assured that it wasn't that and I needed to assure him uh, and he thought that he could trust me also not to betray his identity for having helped. Uh, then he essentially gave Jamil the sign to be able to take me to the next step. And the next step was a Syrian who was in Beirut, who would uh, then get me information closer to the group that either held this person or or had at some point held this person. And was the Sheikh the first person who brought up the name Anas to me to, uh, to you? And uh, if so, what what did he tell you about Anas? Yeah, he, what he said to me was uh, what what was revealed in that meeting was that the missing person had uh, ventured into Syria from the north, from Turkey. Uh, and that at some point uh, he was seen in the company of somebody called Anas, a Syrian guy called Anas. Uh, it was then revealed to me subsequently both by Jamil and by a Syrian called Basel, uh, whom I met in, through Jamil in Beirut, that Anas was one of the largest drug lords in Syria, running this huge uh, captagon ring, captagon, this uh, amphetamine that has ravaged Syria and, and many countries outside of Syria with this proliferation that, that the Middle East hasn't really seen. Uh, 
uh, and uh, and w- once it was clear who Anas was and the kind of company he would be for anyone who held him, I of course realized also what kind of danger that the person I was looking for would be in. Was Basal's jatar as good as advertised? Yes, it was as good as advertised. Okay. The food was delicious. Ba- Basel was uh, an, an a Syrian uh, technology slash intelligence expert who had to leave Syria for reasons I explained in the book. And as part of his uh, exile in Beirut, what he hoped was a temporary exile, he was uh, running a little kiosk with the most delicious food. Yeah, so his zatamanush was just unbelievably tasty. Well, one of the things that he told you about Anash was his willingness to traffic something that you referred to a little bit earlier in this conversation called Captagon. Now, we're familiar with a lot of drugs, sadly, here in America, but Captagon is not one that I had heard of before. What exactly is it, and how does it tie in to the bigger picture with what it was you were trying to figure out? Captagon is a drug that has now slowly making its name into mainstream Western media, but actually has been around for a long time. Captagon is a drug that was first developed in Germany, actually, in the early 60s. Uh, by a company called Kamivia Kahomburg, uh, which is not surprising because actually uh, German companies have been developing amphetamines that find their ways into war for a long time. Uh, there was a drug, an amphetamine called Pervitin, which was used by Hitler's troops in the Second World War and were part of the Blitzkrieg. In other words, it's some kind of an upper allowing people to stay awake for three or four days, and it was critical in the Blitzkrieg. So uh, Pervitin uh, in the Second World War uh, Captagon in the 60s, it was initially used for ADD type of scenarios until in the early 80s, doctors worldwide just declared that illegal because its side effects were so dangerous, in particular blood and heart toxicity levels. What happened was the, the problem with the Captagon is it's extremely easy to manufacture. If you have a, a kid's chemistry kit and a scale, you can make Captagon. It's really that easy. Uh, and in Syria, in the beginning of the war, uh, the production, the manufacturing of Captagon just absolutely exploded. Uh, there were initially uh, parties in the northeast of the country. Hezbollah was very in on the Captagon trade, but very within very few years, basically everyone was making money on Captagon, from the regime to these individual traders. The brother of uh, of the former president, Hafez al-Assad, the uncle of the current president, who has been uh, prosecuted in France and sentenced in France. Now, Rifat al-Assad was in on the Captagon trade. I mean, everyone uh, with any kind of access, the profits are so astronomical. Whenever there's, there is a seizure of Captagon drugs, such as in Italy a year ago, we're talking about 14 tons in some cases. I mean, those are the amounts. And the Captagon's often sold in blister packs to make it look like it's legitimate uh, medication. Saudi Arabia is suffering an epidemic of a Captagon, a huge amount of mainly men under 25 years old are addicted to it now. It's for anything from a party drug to an amphetamine, but it's very, very dangerous. And Syria has now become the exporting center, the worldwide exporting center for Captagon. It's a drug that's starting to ravage European countries too, mainly in Southern Europe, because it makes its way there from the Mediterranean. So this is a very serious thing. And this guy, Anas, his real name, by the way, uh, was really controlling the Captagon trade in large parts of Syria. But it's Captagon simply being just one thing that he was trafficking in. Say he was trafficking people from hostages to young girls who are taken from their villages to to heating oil, to anything that in a war economy obviously can be traded at huge profits. 
So you make your way back home in the States after this meeting with the Sheik and pretty quickly receive another call from Khalid that Jamil had located Anas, possibly in Jordan, and you needed to get there as fast as possible to try and contact him in Amman, Jordan. You arrived a couple days later, armed with pictures of Anas and his crew, as well as the possibility that he may have already moved along to Dubai. How did things play out at breakfast the morning after that you arrived in Amman? So Khaled actually told me to come to Amman immediately. It's one of my terrible regrets uh, in this story uh, that I delayed by one day. I had a meeting in Washington that I'd waited for a long time to have. I really couldn't postpone it. Uh, and I asked Khalid if I could just come a day later rather than immediately. And Khalid was uh, not happy about that, but it was what it was. Uh, I, by the time I arrived uh, in in Jordan, I'd lost 24 hours. Uh, I arrived there knowing that Anas and his gang, essentially, two of his, uh, his, his colleagues, were there in a hotel in Amman. And it was my best chance of catching up with them. Now, what I would do... When I caught up with him, as, as Khalid would tell me, don't be the barking dog. When you catch up with the car, you better know what you want to do with it. You can't keep on barking. Uh, what, what happened at breakfast is that I connected with two of those three. It turned out, unfortunately, that I had just missed Anas, who had moved on to the Gulf, to Dubai. Uh, but I connected with two of those, two of those three. One, actually, uh, an American uh, of Palestinian descent who, who grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, outside Detroit. And the other one, a Syrian uh, who lived locally, um, one called Mike and the other one called Imad. And uh, it, they, they made it very clear to me. I knew from my interactions with them, and it was a very strange interaction, some of it a little bit threatening, some of it almost comical. But I ended up finding out uh, I, that, uh, that there was this connection of the missing person with Anas. And in fact, that the Anas that was their buddy was the correct Anas that I was looking for. I wasn't sure about that until I actually connected with these two guys. And so I realized they gave me the next clue on trying to track down this Anas because he'd be the one with the missing information. The clue being that uh, they connected me to his former wife who lived in Dubai. And so that was the next step in this hunt was and uh, trying to catch up with Anas is try to connect with people in his life to get more information. So this eventually does require you to fly to Dubai to connect with his ex-wife Lubna, who was described to you as a beautiful, cunning Syrian businesswoman. Khalid once again comes through for you, getting her phone number for you and also floating your reputation as someone that was worth her knowing. You met with her briefly early in the day before a longer interaction that night. But with that first meeting, did she meet the expectations set forth the first time you saw her and spoke with her? She did. She was exactly as he had described. He, you know, he he told me, uh, you know, tongue in cheek. Also, just beware. She's a beautiful Syrian woman. My father learned that the hard way. Obviously, Khalid's <laughs> mother was a beautiful Syrian woman. Uh, she was very, very shrewd. Uh, I, she, she, uh, our first interaction was actually quite testy because she didn't pick up my phone when I first called her and then called me back and was kind of rude. Uh, and, uh, I've ultimately the reason for that being that I just have a regular phone number. And I think in the Gulf, if you're a VIP, maybe not just in the Gulf, 
you have some number where the last four digits have to be identical, something, you know, like like a license plate, a phone number is another form of status symbol. Mm. Uh, So she concluded from my very ordinary cell phone number that I wasn't someone worth knowing. Only then when I identified myself and she had been told that I might be beneficial to her, that she agreed to meet me. She then summoned me to a place uh, in Dubai, actually called The Address, a very posh place, uh, where she was interacting with someone else. And the whole thing was kind of staged. She met with me briefly. She was commanding a lot of attention. Uh, she's very noticeable. And then just suddenly ended the meeting and left. And I just thought it was very similar to Jamil and the Sheikh, which is that there was some kind of a test. And again, I had failed the test. I was very dejected, went back to the hotel and thought that might be the end of the road. I didn't know any other way to get to Anas. Um, and then she called me in the hotel and said, listen, I'm sorry I had to run. Why don't we meet for dinner tonight? And so for some reason she had concluded some tests and then she told me later that she didn't want to have a conversation at that location because there were too many people that she knew, including some Syrians at adjacent tables. She didn't want to have a conversation in front of them, which of course begs the question, why choose that location <laughs> to begin with for a meeting? So you do really get down to business at dinner that night. Knowing that you were going to ask her for something, she asked you for a favor first to help her and her daughter escape Dubai for immunity and a path to citizenship in Western Europe. After hearing her request, you asked her about how you could contact Anas. She warned you about him and uh, also told you some pretty despicable things regarding Anas. What were some of the specifics she shared with you about just how bad of a person he was? Uh, aside from just describing his characteristics, the most shocking thing that she shared with me, uh, without giving away too many spoilers in the book, but, but, but this I can say is she, she shared with me this unbelievably brutal rape of her own sister by Anas. So uh, she, in a graphic way with pictures, with uh, signs of, this, of, this, of the injuries of this poor young woman. Uh, and, and you see, you're suddenly confronted with this vicious uh, cruelty of this person. You're not just having a theoretical conversation about some drug dealer. Uh, at that point, I had been warned about him, but the graphic detail that she provided me with uh, took it to a whole new level. It became very clear that this is not a person where you can actually talk to and appeal to any kind of humanity or compassion in get, giving information on some missing person. Uh, this was a callous, dangerous, and, and really unpleasant individual. And where did she say that you could find him? She told me that uh, the location that he spends time in is uh, in a place, actually the Hotel Meridian compound, right very close to the airport in Dubai. Uh, It has a whole lot of restaurants and bars. There was one bar in particular called Jules Bar, which is essentially a a meat market where uh, these traffickers of young girls force them to wait for men who want to spend hours or nights with them there. And so it is one of the most awful places you ever see uh, she she told me that that's the place I'm most likely to bump into him. But she, at that point, I should mention, also had cut off her ties with him in a way that I describe in the book. Uh, it, it all gets very violent very quickly. Uh, that is the reality that she grew up in and the reality of Anas's life. But so she directs me to this Jules bar. And that's, again, the next step in this in this adventure that I'm going through. So you scout that location the next day before returning at night to hopefully find Anas. Though you started out at the restaurant where he normally sat to watch who was going in and out of Jules' bar, a waiter said that you would actually have better luck finding him in Jules. What happened when you went to that bar? Jules' bars is a really hard place to describe. 
I certainly haven't had experience with those kinds of establishments. Uh, you walk in there and uh, you're, first of all, immediately confronted with ear-splitting music. And I was immediately accosted by several women asking me whether I was interested in leaving the place with them. It, and I was just about to just turn around and leave. Uh, and then what happened was right in front of me, actually just blocking my path to the door, uh, I saw a man drag a young, what looked like a young girl, by her hair on the floor. And she was screaming in agony. And uh, he was blocking my, my stop. And I, I just asked him to let go of the girl. And we ended up in a physical altercation uh, as a result of that. Uh, and, uh, and I, and, and, and then left the, left the establishment right after that. I was actually stopped. I was walked out by security guards for having caused a disturbance, which was beyond ironic given the activities that were taking place in the, in the bar, uh, that they didn't seem to have a big problem with. So as you were about to grab a cab to head back to the hotel and kind of get recentered, you were stopped by another girl who had been in the club and seen everything. Rim was her name, and she was actually the older sister of the girl that you had helped in Jules' bar. And when you mentioned your search of Anas to her, she knew exactly who he was. How did she know him? Uh, she her, she just turned pale, and uh, you, you just see as if she had seen a ghost the moment I mentioned his name. Uh, she, Her and her sister's story was that Anas and his gang were responsible for grabbing her from her village in Syria and trafficking her to the Gulf. For her, she was the devil. She referred to Mishaitan as the devil. Uh, Her story and what she had endured and what she and her sister had endured and other girls like them was some of the most heartbreaking things I'd ever heard in my life. It's things you can't even repeat. You never even would imagine. And it also turned out that, uh, that her sister was exactly the age of my daughter. So you can't help but constantly think of your own children and the life they've led and, and just imagine the kind of suffering that, that these young girls had gone through then. So it, it was uh, uh, just an unbelievable story. She also confirmed that Anas had left Dubai uh, and that he was expected back sometime soon. And she promised, uh, if she could, to send me a text message uh, if she knew that he was back. So she she was really... Uh, the person who helped me on from there on. Otherwise, my trail might have gone cold. While also promising a text if and when he did return, she also advised you to have a plan for meeting him. And that is, don't try to appeal to him emotionally and also have something to offer him a value, something he would value. How were you able to break through and figuring out a confident set of plans for how to approach him given the opportunity? I went back to my hotel. She she really gave me very smart advice, which is the idea that I would just walk up to him and have a conversation with any, any in any kind of conversation. The likelihood of me leaving that conversation, first of all, intact, and second of all, with the information I wanted, was close to zero. So uh, what she said later on seemed so obvious, but I hadn't really considered it quite that way. I was just so focused on catching up to him that I hadn't really thought through what I would do when I did. In that sense, I was that barking dog that Khalid had warned me about. Yeah. And uh, I went back to the hotel and, and spent hours with sheets of paper that I stuck against the wall trying to map out a possible strategy. And I came up essentially uh, with the initial, the initial idea was, do, can I in any way intimidate this guy into 
giving me information? Could I threaten him or his activities with something through my contacts in the region, through some of the people in law enforcement in the region? Was there anything I could do to threaten him? I quickly concluded there was nothing I could do, that this guy was so powerful and so wealthy that it would be laughable for me to think that anything I would say or indicate would intimidate him. The second idea I had was, uh, was there something I could offer him in return? In other words, some kind of a barter, any information. I couldn't pay money. I obviously couldn't pay ransom. I, out of principle, don't get involved in any hostage situations that involve ransom, uh, not just because it's illegal, but also because every situation where ransoms are paid generate new hostage taking. Uh, so there's a moral aspect to that, too. Um, and I realized that that uh, I didn't really have anything of value to a person who had not only navigated this kind of war so successfully, but had amassed un- incredible wealth in the process of doing so. There, there was nothing, no chip that I could dangle, no carrot I could dangle that was not blatantly illegal uh, that would entice him. And I was really feeling very dejected. And, and only then I got a jolt, actually, from a text of hers, um, of, of Reims, that I just suddenly realized the way Anas had been described to me, mainly by Lubna, uh, his former wife, uh, was as a person who was a workout and steroid junkie. He was extremely vain, constantly referred to him in those terms, called himself Mr. Big Time. Uh, <laughs> and it, what, what, what I realized is the same thing Jamil had warned me about when we went to see the Sheikh in Beirut was don't flatter him. He really resents people who try to flatter him. In part, I think he th- considers an insult to his intelligence. Um, I realized that the only way uh, if I could do it in a in a in a not too saccharine, not too obvious way, the only way to get Anas to open up and perhaps volunteer information would be through some form of flattery, appealing to his ego, to his greatness, to his formidable appearance. Uh, and that was as good. That's all the plan I had really when I would afterwards connect with him is to figure out a way to establish some kind of rapport where he'd almost want to brag about what he knew. It was a difficult path. I had to map out escape routes along the way in case it wouldn't work out. Uh, but that was really all the the only strategy of the three that I was contemplating, the only one I thought would have even a chance of success. So Rahim texted you the next day as promised that Anas would be back at the restaurant that night. You arrived early and sat next to where you believed he would ultimately sit. And sure enough, he did. What was your initial impression of Anas when seeing and hearing him in person for the first time, considering everything that you had heard about him up to that point? It's hard to describe it. It was also very hard to write about it because as I'm writing about it, I realized that he seems like a comic book figure <laughs> uh, in my words. And, and and he really was that way. He was really large. He's 6'5", 6'6", 280 pounds. You know, I mean... His arms, you know, his wrists were bigger than my thighs. It's just one of those really large specimens. Uh, he, he was extremely unappealing. He was clean shaven. He had these, uh, he looked like a Sharpe, I described in the book. He had these, the head was beet red uh, and, and had these deep lines in the head. Uh, just a very odd figure. And he was dressed in something that, uh, to this day, I don't know if it was fake or not, but he described it as a T-shirt worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. It had this extremely bright pattern on his T-shirt, which ended up, uh, he said, were these uh, diamonds uh, arranged in some spherical pattern. Uh, just a strange, really almost like a caricature of a comic book figure. But that was the impression he got, and it was very overwhelming. He also had this stench, this very sweet stench of aftershave. 
so, so it was this overpowering experience and it's very strange it's almost when you're sitting there it's almost like you feel like you've been stunned or hit for a moment it is like a stinger that you might suffer in sports that that uh, for a moment paralyzes you I, I was really stunned just to witness his appearance at first and there was something he was exuding this anger and intimidation uh, constantly so it, it took me a few moments to just take a deep breath and be able to converse with him and that $100,000 diamond bejeweled t-shirt was actually the opener for you and figuring out a way to get into a conversation with him. And you ended up going pretty deep with him about what was happening in Syria at the time, which I believe was in 2014. Considering how knowledgeable you were and are about that country's atrocities, did he tell you anything that surprised? He did. Uh, let's maybe take a step back here. I think we have a tendency to make assumptions about people based on one skill set and one characteristic that we think translates into others and usually are wrong assumptions. We do it most famously in our politics where we think that a person who's wealthy is necessarily also a capable politician, uh, when in fact it's com completely different skill sets that don't necessarily translate from one to the other. And I think we do the same thing with people who we consider evil, is that we somehow irrationally believe that they have to be dumb. Uh, and uh, in fact, if you think about it rationally, a person, no matter how evil, who amassed the kind of wealth and, and navigates a war economy as successfully as someone like Anas is probably anything but dumb. And what astounded me is not just the way he was describing his business, the drug trade, the human trafficking trade, the way he had figured it all out, including the things he stayed away from because he knew that uh, it would be potentially a career and life threatening move. For example, he told me that he wouldn't touch chemical weapons, both that the, the opposition militias as well as the regime that were dealing with chemical weapons, especially VX, this nerve agent that was being uh, imported by North Korean agents in Syria. He said, that's just for the big boys. I'm not touching that, meaning that's the primary people within the regime that are dealing with it. So he was also smart enough to know which areas of that war economy not to tread into. So it was fascinating for me to listen to him astutely describe that. But what was also very interesting is his and uh, a Saudi friend of his who stepped to our table, actually a member of a Saudi royal family, uh, were, where they provided me with the most accurate analysis of the war and of the various powers and militias and the role of the outside powers in Syria in, that I'd ever heard. And I've been dealing with this for many years. I've spoken to many decision makers and pundits about that people far more intelligent and insightful than I am. Uh, and yet I'd never quite heard it described so accurately uh, and astutely as Anas had done in, in that meeting. He's obviously a very bad dude, but even the worst people on this planet start out as innocent children. Did you ever gain a sense of what caused him to turn into what he became as an adult? It's difficult for me to have that conversation because uh, everyone I met uh, who knew him, include not only Lubna, but other people too, describe him as someone who was uh, hardwired in an evil way. Uh, and this almost becomes kind of a spiritual religious conversation, whether we're hardwired that way, whether it's nature or nurture, whether there's a, a certain predilection, what makes someone a serial killer? Is it an experience? Is there always a, is there a certain line someone is more readily willing to cross? He was described to me as someone uh, who had, whose parents had had a number of uh, daughters before he arrived and when they finally had a son was treated as uh, the second coming. 
and uh, was spoiled rotten as an early age and had always displayed a certain cruelty, also cruelty towards animals. Uh, so the, the things that came to my mind is the way famous serial killers had been described too and certain signs, because the question we always ask is whether there were warning signs we might have detected earlier. I can't answer that question. Uh, on a human basis, I, I try not to assume uh, that people are just wired that way. And the experience, you know, this whole experience as in others in Syria, compounded in me this sense that of there but by the grace of God go I or by the grace of being born to my parents where I was born in the surroundings I was born same thing for my own children that's the more powerful emotion I go I come away with I do not know what people have to do to survive uh, situations such as Syria certainly he's had a lot of hardship in his life too but there are also people who emerge from that uh, type of hardship with an unbelievable sense of humanity and kindness and compassion for others. So what we think are correlations or causations in these types of developments, we're probably wrong and we're very bad at predicting human development and human character. So I, I can't really answer that. It would be very easy to say that he displayed these signs in early childhood. It was reported to me that way. I, I just don't know that. What I do know is by the time I caught up with him, this was a really evil person. And through the conversation about Syria, you very adeptly got him to eventually talk about Paul Blocker. But for people listening right now to find out what happened, whether or not you ultimately gain some closure one way or another on Paul Blocker, just going to have to read the book. And uh, thank you very much for telling this story. Real quick, a couple more things, Daniel. And don't want to give away too much here, so you don't necessarily need to share the details of the respective dreams. But did you ever tell Hubie about your shared dream? I did. You're referring to a section where uh, when I uh, call him with information that he was asking for, uh, he told me about a dream he had had, and he and I had had a very similar dream. I, I don't want to divulge it because, again, I don't want to sure. give a, a spoiler. Uh, these are those odd uh, moments you have in life and in a, such a condensed uh, uh, emotional experience where every feeling seems to be so exacerbated, joy or sadness, where you feel like you're, you, you really are connected to the subconscious in a way that you otherwise are not quite aware of. Uh, I don't want to make it some kind of a fake or armchair parapsychology discussion, but it, it is certainly eerie to realize how we can be connected with people that we didn't realize prior to that. Yeah. So the, the shared dreams with Hubie was a big part of that experience. We, we have spoken about this subsequently many times. Certainly seems synchronistic. And last question, you obviously talk in very frank terms about some people that are very close to you in your life. I'm assuming that these people have had a chance to uh, read some iteration of this book so far. Is the feedback amongst those who were most involved in telling this story, uh, has it been good for you? Yeah, I also should say that they were all involved in telling it. In other words, uh, Khaled, Rim, Lubna, people who have helped me along the way. Uh, I wouldn't have written and published this book, uh, not only without their agreement, but also they had a chance to look at drafts and they were, they were part of shaping it. They corrected things when I had uh, errors in there. 
I'd recorded a lot of conversations and taken notes, but I still had made mistakes and all of them had a chance to correct it. I footnote some instances where they corrected me so to make clear to the reader that someone had a different recollection of something. But they, this was all synchronized with them. In some cases, especially for the victims like Riem and Sama, I gave them pseudonyms. Uh, Riem and Sama now live somewhere else with a new identity. It's described in the book. Um, I name every perpetrator, including Anas and his gang, and every perpetrator within the Syrian regime. Uh, they are named and outed fully in the book. I obviously don't care about what they like about the book. I was told that the head of Syrian intelligence, since the book came out, he contacted a friend of mine, a Syrian woman who lives uh, in Dubai, and uh, asked her to take down the tweet the, that she posted when the book came out. So obviously it's ruffled some feathers there. That's just fine with me. Uh, but the, the people that I, the people, my friends and the victims and the people whose stories I want to tell have all had a hand in shaping this book and making sure that it is accurate and exactly reflects our conversations too. Are you worried at all that Anas might read this book and want to get some sort of payback? If you read the book carefully, you'll see why I'm not worried about that. Fair enough. He is Daniel Levin, not only an expert in economic development, war zone diplomacy, political reform, and anti-corruption. He is also a published author. His newest book is Proof of Life, 20 Days on the Hunt for a Missing Person in the Middle East. Daniel, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very informative and entertaining book. Thank you, Trey. I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. Join me next time when I speak with Claudia Kalb, an award-winning author and journalist whose new book is Spark, How Genius Ignites from Child Prodigies to Late Bloomers. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out today. You can listen, learn, and subscribe at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.